Welcome to the Entrepreneur's MBA, bringing you lessons from real-life entrepreneurs they don't teach in business school. Here's your host, business coach and marketing strategist, Adam Kipnis. You know, when we started in this new COVID world, it was about uncertainty, uncertainty, uncertainty. And a lot of people sat on their hands. A lot of people didn't take advantage of what was in front of them because normal was right around the corner. And we've been waiting on normal, but now we're six months in looking at probably more like 12 to 18 months of a different world. How do we take advantage of it? How do we look at the world we're in and say, here's what I do. How can I pivot a little bit? And I know we've used the word pivot a lot in the last six months, but those pivots are important. My guest today has made a very important pivot, not only in his business, but showing others in the event space, which has been severely curtailed and almost stopped in many places, how events can actually thrive in this environment. More people, more eyeballs, more tickets, all of it by doing things online versus just live. Jim McCarthy, thanks for joining today and taking a few minutes to talk about what you're doing and how you're helping your clients thrive. I'm, I'm delighted to be here, Adam. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. And we'll, we'll get to, to what you do in, in, in the world today and some of the cool stuff that you've been able to add to your business in the last six months. But when was your first entrepreneurial venture? Like your brain just doesn't work where it's like, oh my God, we're in a pandemic. I might as well shift my business here. That's yeah. something that's learned. How did that start for you? Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, the first business that I started that I was truly a founder of was Gold Star, actually, and that was 18 years ago. But before that, I was uh, a first-day employee of a startup in the during the dot-com boom, 1999. And before that, I was in um, two very high-growth startups as an employee. And so one was Noah's Bagels, which was big in the uh, in the on the West Coast, uh, yep. in the 90s, as you may remember, and then. Uh, GeoCities, which many people will remember as the first free homepage website in the world that was enormous, absolutely enormous. Um, and so both of those were not necessarily me being the entrepreneur, but me being close up with entrepreneurs, Noah himself, for example, and then, and then uh, David, who's, who was the founder of, of GeoCities, who um, really just breakneck speed growth type things where you're, you're playing by a slightly different set of rules than normal. Interesting. And so, so you got to see that up close. Did you um, have the, the pain of working for a startup where, where you made no money as long as the owner didn't make any money? Or were you, were you far enough in that, uh, that there were at least paychecks coming? Yeah, I was, I was in the uh, paychecks phase for those businesses, for sure. But, but relatively early, like relatively early on. But, you know, you, you can only go so far with no paychecks, right? That, that's, a, that's, a first, uh, that's a founder phenomenon, pretty much, right? <laughs> Right. And, and so, so you did too, so you knew that. So then you were employee number one of another startup. What, um, what drove you there? Was that a friend saying, hey, I need you along for this ride? Or do you have specific skills that were identified? Did you yeah, seek they, it out? Yeah, the, it was actually the outgrowth of, the, of GeoCities. There were some people that had a concept. Actually, it was like two separate groups of people that the, the creator of this concept knew that he sort of mushed together to make a founding team. And I was part of four or five people that were on that team. Um, and so that, and that was fascinating, sort of the internet culture combined with, um, well, it was internet, but it was Cisco combined with GeoCities. So people who were coming at the internet from two different directions very successfully in the 90s um, to create this, to create this, this new company. And, uh, you know, it was a fascinating story. 
late 1999 all over, you know, for those of you who know what 1999 means in the internet business, it was a fascinating time to be there, to be in that business. I, I bet. And it was the, probably the, the best day and the worst day to found a, a technology company. I mean, right? it, totally. Oh, yeah, you're right. It, it was the easiest way to uh, get on a rocket that was probably going to explode. I mean, you know, they, they say that whole thing about, um, you know, the best, business are start, best businesses are started in recessions, typically. And Gold Star was started in a recession um, in 2002, post 9-11, you know, recession that we had. Um, but the opposite of that was in 1999, the company that, that I was part of actually raised $10 million on a $40 million valuation in 90 days with nothing but a, a concept really. Um, so, it, you know, it was, it was a different, it was a different time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, now, now there, there's, uh, there's money looking for homes right now. Um, definitely cheap money allows businesses to thrive if, if you have the right business. Uh, so we're hopefully we're not in in the bus part that we that we lived through you and I both in 1999 2000. But so you, I'm guessing we don't have to go into the whole story there. But I'm guessing it didn't end well. But that didn't necessarily stop you from saying, "All right, now I want to do this thing for myself." So what was sort of that transition yeah. from being in a business that that was not a rocket ship to saying, "Now I want to risk it all over again, and this time have everything on my back." Yeah, I th I, it was really, I think one of the best ways you can learn is what's known as via negativa, right? What not to do, the, the negative way, like don't do this. Um, and yeah. so a lot, a lot of the things that, I'll, I'll take some responsibility for it, though I wasn't the CEO, I wasn't in the C-suite um, for that company, but I can't completely shirk my responsibility for the decisions. But there were many things that that company did, including really rapidly hiring, for example, before really having leverage on the business model. Um, that, that's an example of something where all you gotta do is not do that to do not harm yourself, right? There, there are a lot of lessons like that, that if you look at um, a catastrophic sort of startup story, despite its promising beginnings, you can get a long way on don't blank, right? <laughs> don't, you know. Um, and, and I think that's kind of what it was, was it, it, stri it struck me as fairly obvious that despite the things that we started with in terms of advantages, we could easily have increased our odds of success by avoiding some big mistakes. Um, you know, and that's the via negativa idea, right? The, the negative paths don't make mistakes, right? It's like the best thing someone could do for their health if they smoke is stop smoking, right? It's not doing, right. not doing something, right? That, that you, that's a harmful thing. And, and looking back, how obvious were some of those don'ts? They were they were pretty obvious at the time. Except we were living in a time when the wizened you know elders of the world would tell you crazy things, right? Like I, I can literally remember a meeting in which the board um, told our 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 rookie CEO, right, told our rookie CEO that he should hire any talent that he meets because you never you never know um, someone might grab them up and then they won't be available and that he shouldn't worry about revenue. And it, it was the kind of thing where you're like, well, that's kind of a crazy idea, right? Not knowing whether you have any use for them, not knowing whether they can do anything for you, just, just hire them, you know? And it's just like, no, that's not really a good idea. That's just, you know, uh, <laughs> it's just generally not gonna work out if that's your policy, you know? 
I love the theory behind it, right? Hire smart people, you'll find something for, for them to do. That's not, uh, what, that's not what they're saying. They're saying hire everybody that you think is good that you meet, right? Like just, just hire them, right? It's like, well, I don't think that's quite right, you know? <laughs> Even if they can sell, you can't hire everybody. Uh, the pay, payroll catches up with you eventually. That's right. Uh, so, so going into Gold Star, first talk a little bit. About, so uh, many of you have probably used Gold Star, whether you know it or not, right? It, it's a, it's a, a site to go and buy tickets to, to live events. I've used it, honestly, for a lot of plays and a lot of concerts. Um, going into it, wh where was the idea? Was it percolating in your head? Was it something that was sort of offered up? Where did the idea come from? And then what were your steps on actually making it happen? Actually, the three of us started the company who all worked at the previous company and we were also coincidentally friends. Um, and one of the, the, my, C, the CTO of the company, Robert Graff, who's still working uh, today on, on Gold Star and Stellar every day, um, did a consulting project for a company that did a similar but not quite the same thing and he thought, this is a really interesting um, concept, but they don't really have the right frame of reference on. They're not looking at it the right way. So we spent, we probably spent two or three months just kind of chit chatting on the drive into work about this, you know, and about how there was a lot of promise, but you know, you, you, you sort of had to do it different than, than this um, other uh, person was doing it. Um, and so we, we probably spent three months you know, do, just doing, you know, chat over a beer, chat over coffee on the way to work, kind of talk, like refining the idea. And then we sort of said, well, is this an interesting thing for us to do? And we then went into a kind of a full on, let's make a sort of a business plan or at least a thorough strategy about how we're going to approach this. And one of the things we knew is that we could get it just with the skills that we had and the people that we could recruit for next to nothing, that we could get the thing off the ground and see if it, it made sense. So this is what they would called nowadays an MVP, right? We knew we could make an MVP without really any cost, negligible cost. Um, and so we did, that was really the thing, right? Like we just thought like, let's see what we can do if we build this and, and put it in front of people, will they respond to it? And what was, and I don't know if this is the way that you, you, you all were talking about it, but what was the problem you were, you were solving or hoping to solve at the beginning? Actually, it's the same, in many ways, it's the same problem that Gold Star's always been addressing, which is there are people who want to go out more, like you, and hopefully many others of the listeners, and then there are always shows that aren't full. And that problem continues, you know, right, right through today. Well, would, would, would do if, if we were in business, but um, uh, if the industry was, was going. And that really is it. So it really felt like there, there, there's the... It really felt like the internet, customizable emails, customizable, you know, accounts that you can log into and you could use AI, you could do all these different things over the years that we added on to match up that inventory that's going to sit empty with a person who otherwise would sit at home, right? So there's this idea of an empty chair in the, in the theater, in the concert, and somebody, a full chair of somebody sitting in their sofa at home going like, I'm bored, right? So we felt like you could do that in a way that hadn't been done to really bring those two things together. And we were right. I mean, that, that, that thesis has been amply demonstrated, not just by us, although we were the first. And it, I, I, I'm sure you've, you've, uh, everyone who's listening, um, 
knows the company, maybe maybe not the person. Jeff Hoffman was the founder of Priceline. Um, what he did, he was on an airplane, and as soon as the airplane door shut, it was like an epiphany to him that all this product is now wasted. Yeah, and right. um, same thing with hotels. Like He would get there, and he would check in at 10 o'clock at night for a, a board meeting the next morning or whatever, and they'd upgrade him. He's like, oh, I just got upgraded, meaning they've got empty, empty rooms. And that's sort of where Priceline was born, which is right around the same time as Gold Star was born. Right. Um, maybe a little bit after. Did did you were you able to sort of learn from and model what Priceline was doing with scale inventory, or were those two things happening simultaneously in sort of different brains? I think Priceline started a couple, two, three years before Gold Star. Um, and their big model at the beginning was the name your price model. You'd sort of say here's right. what it is. Um, we uh, felt pretty sure that model wouldn't work when it came to live entertainment, just because it's too much hassle for a pro a, you know the, the purchase level of that a ticket typically represents. Yeah, yep. it, it, and, and then later a company was founded, not by us, but a company was founded that actually pursued that thesis very aggressively, and it didn't work at all. Um, so I mean, it, it, it you know it, the idea that was happening though, the thing that they were part of and that we were part of and that later others were part of, like the flash sale sites that you recall, was the, the um, real-time mass customization capabilities of the internet coming together with the reality of inventory in the, in the real world, right? Whether that be airplane seats, concert seats, theater seats, you know, hotel rooms, et cetera, right? That you could actually do that in a way, you, you could put your finger on where, what your inventory availability was, and you could reach an audience rapidly with mass customization and low cost. And that's in many ways been the story of a whole category of retailers like us, you know, since about the time that we went into business. Previously, it would have been too slow and too expensive to bother with that, with that idle inventory, right? And so right. only the internet that made that possible. And it, Having something where people could go doesn't take employees. Obviously, you had employees on the back end to run it, to sell, and to, to recruit things. But people going on and buying it themselves was revolutionary. And, and last minute, um, obviously, opened up the opportunity for, for you and your team to build this company. Well, but think about what you did, right? There were the, the Ticketmasters of the world. Like, nobody knew there was any place other than Ticketmaster probably back in in 2001, 2002 to get tickets. Now there's a lot of them, whether it's people selling their own tickets or whether it's um, Gold Star, or we'll talk about Stellar in a second. Um, talk a little bit about the competition because there were big, um, you know, 800 pound gorillas in your industry that could have said, oh, well, let's just start doing that also. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and take it over because they had name recognition and brand recognition and a lot of the same clients already probably. Um, how did you plan for that competition? Did it come? And obviously you're still in business 18 years later. So how did you ward off competition? Yeah, I mean, we didn't have a lot of competition to begin with because it was a concept that we invented. Um, but, you know, you, you said it could have been, right? Like, it, and they could have. Um, the thing about, the thing about big players like, in our industry, Ticketmaster taking something like this on is that it's a small opportunity for them, especially at first, right? Um, it relative to the thing that they're worried about on a daily basis. 
And what they're worried about on a daily basis, then and now, is being the world's most reliable enterprise class ticketing system for a venue at any scale, right? No matter how big your event is, no matter how worldwide your on sale is, it needs to absolutely freaking work bulletproof, right? And it has a very complex set of things that it has to do, right? It has to collect payment in all these different currencies. It has to control access to a venue. It has to be in a barcoded form. It has, could be in a physical form. It could be a subscriber. It could be a donation. It could be a million things. And so um, the way that, and, and the lesson of that, it has nothing to do with ticketing. <clears throat> it has to do with the fact that for the most part, when these opportunities are new, they don't look that attractive to an incumbent. Right. Either because they seem really small or because they seem like a giant hassle. And, um, you know, com companies, especially in successful incumbent companies, they don't want hassle. They want, they want smooth, right? They want smooth, smooth, smooth. Now, what they, what they do and what they can do is say, look, we see that there's a, an, a potentially large opportunity here. So we're going to make an upfront commitment of people and money, and we're going to have them pursue this totally in parallel to the core business. And that can be successful. But most companies don't do that. Most companies, when they see something emerge like this, they, they make either a token effort or they just go like, oh, you know what? And, and the reality is, I mean, you know, several years later, after a, a little bit of a sort of, uh, well, I don't know, just a, a little bit of conflict with, with Ticketmaster, we became partners where we said, look, you know, we can provide this to your, to your venue clients in, that, that already are using Gold Star and like the service and we're moving tickets that you're not moving. We can, you know, make it such that you make money on this too. And they said, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So we've been partners with Ticketmaster for 13 years. Um, wow. Yeah. And, and so, you know, it isn't always just about competition. I mean, competition is overrated in my opinion. I think it was Peter Thiel who said, you know, competition is for losers. And I, you know, it, it's, it's kind of true, right? Like it, it isn't about beating somebody, it's about succeeding. So to the degree that you can make competition irrelevant or you can go to people that would be competition and say, look, we can just make money together because we're doing this and you're doing that. It's, it's, it's obviously preferable. Um, I've seen a lot of people in, in the industry over this time that I've been in it start from the point of view of like, we're going to beat Ticketmaster or, we're, you know, or, it's not always Ticketmaster, but, they, you know, whoever the big guy is, like, we're going to take them down. And it's like, what a foolish way to start. You know what I mean? What a foolish way to start. You don't have to beat them. You just have to win. You know what I mean? And your win doesn't have to equal anybody's loss necessarily, right? So you look at a company like Eventbrite, for example, which has built everything it's built in, in the marketplace of ticketing without beating, I'm doing air quotes, you can't see on the, on the podcast, but without beating Ticketmaster or, or really beating anybody, right? They created a, a, a huge uh, expanse in the market that, that um, is very valuable and, and, and we've done the same and others have done the same. And, and I think that's the right way to think as an entrepreneur. I appreciate that. Thank you. So you had a decision point to make on or about March 15th of this year. You had, you had a decision to hang on for dear life or think differently, do differently and take a lead role in the event space. Yep. Uh, talk about that. That it was probably more than a week, but that week, 
was probably a very pivotal week. That, that third week of March was very pivotal when that's when events were really starting to close down. That's when a lot of uh, venues, whether it was states um, on the East Coast, um, started to close down live music. I, in Arizona, it was much later. It was more like May before that happened. But California was a little bit earlier. So there were some politics involved in why some states did one thing versus another. But talk about the conversations in your head and with your team that were going on mid-March that led to Stellar. Yeah, the, the reality of what was coming was getting clearer and clearer through the month of February to us. Uh, we were actually tracking in customer service how many people were asking about their tickets and what if it's canceled or what if I'm afraid of going to a crowded theater. And so by, by mid-February, we were, we were just sitting there going like, going to be bad you know i mean it's funny looking back at my emails and messages i i was very aware of this because we were doing all this planning but even you know it was like you can't it's like you couldn't accept we as a people couldn't accept like how bad you know i'm talking to my friends in italy who are locked in their apartments and yet it didn't sink in fully right until that week in march where tom hanks got sick and um nba canceled and all that stuff you know um and you know we we sent our employees home to work from home. I think it was March 10th. We just said, you got to work from home. Um, I sent an email to our 10 million customers on, I think it was March 13th saying, you know, I can't believe I'm telling you this, but don't go out to shows. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, wow. Yeah. Like, yeah. like you, you got to stop. Right. Like, in, and so it, you know, the, the first phase was just slamming on the brakes and you slam on the brakes and, just suffer the consequences, right? Everything comes crashing forward in the car and the airbags deploy and all that stuff, right? Um, and so the, 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 the thought process in my head was, we can, we can pretend that next week or the week after we're gonna be doing something resembling business as usual, but it isn't true. And so it's it just, you know, and some people did sort of continue to fool themselves for a week or two. I had a couple of conversations with people and I'll be really honest with you. I had a couple of conversations with people that week who said, yeah, we're not, we don't really think it's gonna impact us very much. And I have downgraded my opinion of those people since that, because I thought, how can you think like, how can you, you know, how, how can you be so foolish at this point to think that in this industry, it's not gonna affect, it's, it's crazy, right? It's like either just dumb as dirt or, or lying or something. And I couldn't, I can, can't look at them with as much respect as I did before, because it was just like, you gotta be kidding me. Um, so there was a period of time where, you know, we were basically just, you know, having, having slammed on the brakes and deployed the airbags and all the stuff in the back of the car came flying forward. And it was just picking up the pieces from that for say two to three, four weeks. Right. And then, yep. we, came, then we came to the point where we said, there's, there's, there's really just a couple of choices. There's do something and do nothing. And the only scenario where do nothing works is if this industry is back on its feet in a few months. And it's hard to think back, I think, a little bit to how it felt in April for everybody. But, you know, at that point, there was this idea that, well, maybe we will. Maybe by about now, when you and I are talking now, maybe by about now, you know, we'll kind of be, you know, going again and there'll be, you know, a path out and, and so forth. But we saw that as an optimistic possibility, like a really optimistic possibility, right? Like not, not the base case scenario by any means. And so as we, I think that, that, you know, one of the things I would offer to entrepreneurs as a, as a point of thinking is 
you can't control some things and you can control others. And one of the things that we knew we couldn't control was what was going to happen with the pandemic. And so we said, well, there's an optimistic case, there's a base case, and there's a pessimistic case. And we need a plan that works no matter what happens. We, you know, that has a chance of working no matter what happens, you know? And, you know, the people who went into the do nothing mode, I really felt were banking on an optimistic, an optimistic, whether they meant to or not, they were banking on a really optimistic, you know, scenario playing out, um, which seemed unlikely to me at the time. And I think it's been proven to have been unrealistic at, at the time. Um, yeah, so the next step- Very, very much so. Yeah, right. Um, and, and we're at this point hoping that the base case plays out instead of the pessimistic scenario, right? Where we're sort of back in business in spring maybe um, on that stuff. Um, and so then, and then it was a question of, okay, well, okay, we've chosen the do something path rather than the do nothing path. Well, what is that something? Um, and that's where we, we did a lot of game planning and ended up deciding to go full force on online events. And online events, have always been a thing. People have done webinars and web classes and master classes and whatever name you want to do in the, in, in the, the, the sales and marketing area. Um, then you've got some, mu some music folks that are doing their own thing. Um, my cousin happens to be a DJ, so he does a Friday night thing, Facebook Live. Um, Facebook now just shut that down. No more of that anymore. Right. Um, and when, but, but when you're thinking about, all right, we're thinking about online events, they Online events had happened, but they were almost um, happening by default because budget cuts. I mean, I, I was on a number of online events in 2008 through 2011, the financial crisis, because we didn't have enough money in, in businesses to fly a bunch of people together. Um, but they were, they were a backup plan and rather than a standard. That's right. That's right. You, you really just put your finger on it there. Like, and I think that the, the, when we talk about online events now, for us, we're talking less about things like conferences and webinars. We're talking about shows. We're talking about entertainment, right? We're talking about theatrical productions, music productions, comedy, magic, you know, all the things that typically you would buy a ticket to go to on Gold Star or, or even Ticketmaster, Eventbrite, stuff like that, right? Like shows. And furthermore, we're not talking about the singer-songwriter opening their laptop and strumming their guitar and playing a few songs into Instagram Live or something like that. We're talking about a show that's worth paying for, a show that's produced in a professional way, and where if you pay some money for it, you feel great about it. And so it became obvious, and a lot of people went through this thing of like, well, we're gonna do these free online events. And being free events, they were cheap. They were sort of half, <laughs> right? Um, and so a lot of people went like, well, online events are lame. Um, because I saw one and I paid $5 or I paid nothing for it. And you know, the guy was eating pizza between jokes, right? You go, <laughs> that's a true story, by the way, comedian, eating pizza. <laughs> professional comedian at home doing one of these, you know, and so that's not a model that makes any sense. It's not a, it's not what professionals in the live entertainment business do. Right? So our thing was we started seeing people going the other direction. People like Hershey Felder, the piano player, or people like, well, BTS, right? The K-pop band, that the, the biggest band in the world, uh, yep. putting on shows, doing good production value, charging real money, and getting an audience. You know, BTS obviously is one of a kind, but it's, it still remains to be said that 750,000 people paid money to watch that concert back in June online. So wow. they, they did a, a tour's worth of shows 
in 90 minutes from an online event. $20 million in gross from, from a 90-minute show. And that opportunity is really symbolic of what is out there for the world of live entertainment if they take, if we as an industry take this time to figure out how to be, get good at delivering online events that people enjoy and care about. And that's why we built Stellar, to make it easier for people to do that. In doing so, there, so some people understood it and started to do it, and you could, you could provide the tickets for it. Um, if you... But you needed them to want to do it, right? You needed those events. How did you... Um, did you have to coach them? Did you have to develop them? Did you have to say, hey, here's what people are doing. You should go do this too, because now you need the tickets to sell. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we, what we need more than anything is people to produce good events, right? But what we found is that if, if someone puts together a good event and they put it together, they market it, and they put it in front of people who are you know, good customers for that kind of thing, the, the customers don't need to be told. They go, yeah, this sounds good. I'm going to do it, right? There are lots of successful online events um, that people have done big and small, right? I mean, I talk about BTS, but you know, the Geffen Playhouse in, in, um, in Los Angeles, for example, has had a show called The Present, which actually the finale is for sale on Stellar now, but all through the summer, they sold that thing out at $100 a pop because it sounded great and it was great, right? So, you know, we need people in the industry to realize that, that this, is, uh, this is a lever, this is a strategic asset that they can develop. Whether you use Stellar or not, you should use Stellar, but whether you use Stellar or not, it's something that can help get through this, but, but perhaps more importantly, when in-person events are back, just think of the leverage you get by having the business model of an in-person event, which relies on a certain level, you know, percentage of people showing up and it has a capacity limit, right? Which limits your profits, uh, right? At some point, yep. the building is full. Um, but then layer on top of that, a very little marginal cost that you have to pay to make that event into an online event with no capacity limit and no marginal cost on those customers coming in. When you put those things together, if you get good at the online event part of it now, it's going to be, I, I could be the, the greatest boom for live entertainment that's ever happened when in-person events come back. And in the meantime, it's a tool for survival. It's interesting that you say that, that yes, it's a tool for survival and you were able to, to see the opportunity and there are probably a number of your, um, I know we're, we're not using the word competitors, but the other firm, the other businesses in the, in the ticket space um, that, that maybe didn't see or maybe they pivoted later than you did. But yeah, I think we're past the point of we're going back to normal. Whatever normal was, ain't gonna be normal in 2021 and who knows about 2022, but there are gonna be pockets of opening up and, how, but how do you see the blending of the two? Like yeah. life is gonna be different because if I can pay 25 bucks or 50 bucks or a hundred bucks to go see Elton John and Billy Joel again, but now they're doing it from the comfort of their homes but in a, a great studio put on a great show that i saw live i didn't go see him last time because it was like 350 bucks a ticket yeah but if i can get that experience for much less money and see it in my home i can see more live i can see more live events i can see more music i can see more plays uh 
and everyone everyone wins. It's cheaper for me, but they make more money, and um, what? And it doesn't take me five hours; it only takes me two and a half. How do you see the blending of the two going forward? The blending is actually really straightforward. I mean, and and I would call attention to so many conferences do this right. Uh, TED TED conference, for example, has been doing this for years, where you can go to the TED conference and spend I don't know ten thousand dollars or whatever it is to be in person at the TED conference. And not only do you see the content, but you meet all the people and you get delicious snacks and you get, you know, a swag bag and everything else. And the experience is incredibly rich, but then you could also watch it for a thousand bucks, you know, as well, right? So then there's, there's a bunch of people in the room and there's a bunch of other people streaming. So that's, that's just an, an inkling of the model, but closer to our industry or our specific part of the industry, National Theater in the UK and the Metropolitan Opera in New York have been doing this for a decade, where they take and they broadcast performances either to high definition screens in movie theaters and or to a subscriber's computer or, or maybe Apple TV or whatever, um, you know, at home. And the data is very compelling. The data is very straightforward, which is people who are in New York and they love opera or, or they're in London and they love theater, there's no substitute for going to the theater and enjoying the experience. That's still a better experience, but for, for not everyone can go there, right? There's only so many seats in the theater. And by the way, some people aren't in London, right? So not only will you get people who could never be in the theater, but you'll get people who are, think they're interested in opera, think they're interested in theater, think they're interested in your music as an artist, whatever, don't really know, pay a smaller amount, don't have to leave home like you're saying, experience it and go, that was freaking awesome. And the next time I'm in London, the next time I'm, I'm in New York, or the next time that guy's tour, or that, that, that gal's tour comes through my town, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna pay more. And this is what they learned, right? It's not only profitable, yeah. it's also a marketing tool that's extremely effective. And Hamilton could have brought in a trillion dollars if it used that model versus just the $500 a ticket model that, that it was doing. Right. Um, final, final question for me as we wrap up. Now, when you um, were in that startup in, in 99 and went through uh, the rocket ship that, that did, didn't make it to orbit. Sort of a, then you started, a launch pad rocket ship, yeah. <laughs> yes. And, and then you started your own business and you were able to look and, and say, all right, I see where the challenges were and this is how we can do it better next time. As an entrepreneur, you need to sometimes have blinders on and continue to move ahead because you don't need things to stop you. But sometimes you get hurt because you don't see what turns out to be obvious and you, and you should have seen coming. Fast forward 18 years, you almost got blindsided by a pandemic that yep. most of us probably should have anticipated in December, January. You started to notice it mid-February. The rest of America really got hit with it mid-March. Um, what are you doing now? Like, how are you and your team thinking about risk? I guess, are, are you, is your head a little more on a swivel and how are you thinking about, all right, when things come up, what are we gonna do next? How are we gonna be looking at the marketplace? to continue to thrive? I think that, you know, I, I wish I could say like, you know, the, we, we, we've grown wiser. I mean, I think right now we're, we're so, uh, we're, we're like chest deep in this crisis, 
you know, and, and this is our response to it. I, I think, um, you know, I mean, actually, I years ago, like 10 years ago, I remember thinking to myself, there could be a pandemic sometime that actually shuts down live entertainment. Maybe we should insure ourselves against it. And then I sort of like my sandwich arrived or whatever, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and the reality is we, we could have predicted it, but, you know, it's such a uh, frame breaker, this thing, that, um, you know, it, it was really hard to, it's hard to, what I guess I will, here's your answer. Your, your, my answer for this question is, I will never be as dismissive of tail risks again in, in my life as a business person or as a, uh, as just an individual, as a human, right? And by tail risks, I mean like, you know, that, that sort of 1% or less thing where if it comes up snake eyes, you're screwed, right? Like, I think people are too, um, oh, you, you look at a, a small risk and go, well, that's not going to happen. So I don't really have to worry about it. Well, you know, we've just learned that actually it comes up, right? If you, if you roll the dice enough times, um, it comes up. Um, so I think, I think I will be more protective of extreme downside risk um, every bit that I can. I mean, we're in a situation right now where it's kind of all on the line, right? Like in, in terms of the industry, like everyone's trying to just find a path through. Um, but I think everybody should be more cautious about tail risk. And I know I'm going to be, uh, I, I know I'm as a business, as a, as a leader, as a, as an executive or, or as an entrepreneur, like what happens if you roll snake eyes, right? Like it, it happens. It really does happen. And it does. Well, I, I'm, I'm happy that you were able to find an opportunity that you were able to, to thrive in a new way that honestly you're able now to create a space that, um, when live events do come back, you can do both. And now you've created something that hopefully will be uh, a benefit to your clients, your employees, and, and yourself. So, Jim, thanks. Everyone go to StellarTickets.com. We'll have it in the show notes. Uh, and make sure that you see what events there are because there are things going on that maybe you'd want to see. You just don't know they're going because we, as, as the audience, have blinders on. We're like, well, events aren't going on. Um, but every night there are that we can take advantage of. So thanks for bringing that to us. Thanks for your story. And, and thanks for doing what you're doing. I, I, it's my, you know, my pleasure to be on here and thanks to your audience for listening. And I would just say to your audience, if there's somebody who is, you know, producing events or, or is considering the idea of producing online events, go to stellartickets.com and reach out to us. We can help you through it. Fantastic. Thanks, Jim. Thanks everyone for listening to today's episode of the Entrepreneur's MBA. You've been listening to the Entrepreneur's MBA. Download Adam's free book, How to Make More Money in Your Business, at www.freebookfromadam.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.